Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Happy to be back in the uh, Virgin Most Powerful studios here uh, in Southern California. And great to have you along with us. I have a lot to talk about this week, um, including 10 memorable sayings of our Lord Jesus that I think every Catholic should be familiar with. Um, We are also, I just want to make mention that we are in the final three months, the last day of the... uh, of the first of the final three months of the um, special year dedicated to Mary. If you recall, last year, Pope Francis dedicated October of 2021 through October of 2022 as a year especially dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And these last three months, August, September, and October, are themselves all dedicated to the Blessed Virgin. So we're going to mention that, if possible, and certainly going forward. Sorry, I wasn't around so much uh, this month because of my health, but uh, glad to be back in the saddle. Also going to be instituting a new and most likely very irregular feature uh, for No-Nonsense Catholic, kind of a best and worst of the week in the Catholic news. And I think maybe uh, the first recipients may surprise you a little bit. But uh, to begin, as always, we're going to look at the readings, the Sunday readings. Uh, Now we're doing the ordinary form readings for this week, which began with the 22nd Sunday of Ordinary Time, the overarching theme of the readings uh, being humility. And the Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Sirach, chapter 3. My child, conduct your affairs with humility, and you will be loved more than a giver of gifts. Humble yourself the more, the greater you are, and you will find favor with God. What is too sublime for you, seek not. Into things beyond your strength, search not. The mind of a sage appreciates proverbs, and an attentive ear is the joy of the wise. Water quenches a flaming fire, and alms atone for sins. Uh, Sirach, of course, being one of the uh, seven deuterocanonical books that was removed from the canon of Scripture, by the Protestants, removed from the Protestant canon. Probably uh, that uh, business about uh, mortifying yourself and giving alms as uh, atonement for sins, uh, something that Luther would not have appreciated. But uh, Sirach, the author of Sirach, lived in at a time when the Jews were immersed in Hellenistic culture. This is after the conquest of Alexander the Great. And this book, The Wisdom of Ben Sirach, was written about 250 years uh, before Christ. And it was meant as a reminder to Hellenized Jews that for all the comforts and pleasures that the Gentile, pagan, secular culture uh, could provide, true wisdom consists in meditating on God's laws and the teachings, that is to say, the traditions of the past. And the early Christians adopted the book of Sirach. They called it Ecclesiasticus or Liber Ecclesiasticus, book of the preacher or the book of the church because it offered the new Christian converts, many of whom were Gentiles, uh, practical advice on how to live in that secular culture without compromising their faith, just as it had for the Hellenistic Jews uh, centuries before Christ and uh, um, as it can for us today. So the wisdom offered in this passage uh, is simple. The greater you are, the greater your humility should be, because all good things come not from our own strength, but from God. And now the uh, reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews from chapter 12. Brethren, you have not approached that which could be touched, 
and a blazing fire and gloomy darkness and storm and a trumpet blast and a voice speaking words such as those who heard begged that no message be further addressed to them. No, you have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and countless angels in festal gathering, and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and God the judge of all, and the spirits of the just made perfect, and Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. In the book of Hebrews, uh, St. Paul's writing to Jewish converts who are struggling with their new faith, uh, emphasizing here in the book of Hebrews, that uh, Judaism was divinely instituted, that it was the true religion, that its worship uh, expressed the true worship, the commandments, the rituals, the, the, um, the words of the prophets described God's promises and pointed the way to forgiveness and salvation. But that's as far as it went. The old purpose of the old covenant was to point the way to Christ. But when Christ came, uh, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. He conquered sin and death and uh, shattered all the barriers to God and provided the way to eternal life. But many of the Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah found themselves uh, slipping back into their kind of old familiar routines and trying to live a hybrid faith. Right? That's where you, they wound up with the Judaizers who were saying that the Gentile converts had to become Jews before they could become Christians. And uh, the message of the letter to the Hebrews is pretty simple. He's, St. Paul is telling them, once you've embraced this covenant of grace, right, the fulfillment of the old covenant, to turn back to the, to the types and shadows would be to show disdain for the Almighty, because the old sacrifices have been fulfilled in the blood of Jesus, who is the true Lamb of God. So in this passage uh, today, St. Paul compares the old and the new covenants. He alludes to the covenant of Sinai, Right when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and which is a, a terrifying, I mean, it's fascinating, but it's a terrifying spectacle, you know, with, with fire and smoke and, and, and the blaring of trumpets and the thundering voice of God, um, after which the people begged to hear no more directly, you know, no more uh, messages directly from God. They, they just wanted it mediated through Moses. And so consequently, no man or beast was allowed to so much as touch uh, the mountain, to, to go to Mount Sinai, except Moses. And even he said, I'm terrified and trembling. But whereas, you know, in contrast, St. Paul says the new covenant is not about gloom and doom, but this joyous celebration, that the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance, but the blood of Christ cries out for peace and forgiveness. So the old covenant worship then was, was a foreshadowing of the Christian liturgy, the, the Holy Mass, which is literally heaven on earth. And it was from this passage that we understand how every Mass is attended by the whole court of heaven. God, uh, you know, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the angels, the Old Testament saints, the church of the firstborn, and the spirits of the just made perfect, which, by the way, forms the uh, basis for the distinction between those who go straight to heaven and those who only enter after a time of cleansing and purgatory, because nothing unclean shall enter heaven. And it's in Holy Mass that heaven and earth meet. And that, by the way, is why you don't approach communion if you're not in a state of grace. All right, and finally, the Gospel for the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time, taken from Luke 14. On a Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people there 
and the people there were observing him carefully. He told a parable to those who had been invited, noticing how they were choosing the places of honor at the table. A more distinguished, he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline at table in the place of honor. A more distinguished guest than you may have been invited by him, and the host who invited both of you may approach you and say, give your place to this man, and then you would proceed with embarrassment to take the lowest place. Rather, when you are invited, go and take the lowest place, so that when the host comes to you, he may say, my friend, move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to the host who invited him, When you hold a lunch or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your wealthy neighbors, in case they may invite you back and you have repayment. Rather, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now Jesus taught two lessons here. First, um, he spoke to the guests, telling them not to seek the places of honor, because service is more important in God's kingdom than status. And then he told the host not to be exclusive about whom he invited, because God's kingdom is open to everyone. And it's a lesson in humility where greatness is determined by concern for others, rather than presuming that your position entitles you to the favor of God. It's a call to be humble. And how do we do that? How do we achieve humility? We talked about this at length uh, last week, that some people try to give the appearance of humility. Right? They try to appear humble in order to manipulate others. But of course, that's not humility, that's hypocrisy. And some other people honestly think that humility means putting themselves down all the time. But that's not right either, because humility doesn't mean to denigrate yourself, but to be honest with yourself. And truly humble people compare themselves with Christ. And when, when you hold yourself up to the image of Christ as in a mirror, you pretty quickly recognize your sinfulness and, and you know, your, understand your limitations and hopefully you're inspired to seek his grace and to become more like him, um, to conform to his image, right? The truly humble person, then, doesn't deny his gifts and strength. Rather, he recognizes precisely that they are gifts, that they are gifts from God, and then he puts those God-given talents to work, puts them in the service of Christ to use them as our Lord directs. So humility, therefore, lies in gratitude to God for all the benefits that we've received and in the imitation of Christ. And that's no nonsense. All right, uh, just quickly, I mentioned that Pope Francis um, called for a Marian year, a year devoted to Mary from October of 2021 to this October. And um, there's actually a lot coming up in that regard. And I just wanted to say that uh, in, in the coming weeks, we're going to put a special focus, I, uh, hopefully each week, on some aspect of these final months of uh, this Marian year and devotion to the Blessed Virgin, because devotion to her is a great comfort in these troubling times, and that's no nonsense. Okay, back with more right after this, No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back. Uh, you know, when I was a young man, and I mean a much younger man, uh, maybe like 40 years ago, back in the 80s, um, there was something of a renaissance of stand-up comedy. And I really enjoyed uh, comedians back in those days. Um, and, uh, you know, it was all over TV and, and the nightclubs and so forth. I was working as a musician back then. And, um, and so uh, I'm now Catholic, 20 plus years, almost 30 years, and uh, doing this program. But I think it's funny, uh, no pun intended, that a comedian from back in those days should be the recipient of our first ever Even a Broken Clock is Right Twice a Day award. And, um, you know, I, this week I read an article on LifeSite News about comedi comedian Bill Maher. Uh, not somebody that you would think of as an award winner on a Catholic podcast. But, you know, back in the day, long before my conversion, um, I was still pretty conservative, but I enjoyed Bill Maher. Uh, and for two reasons. Number one, back in those days, you couldn't use, uh, you know, profanity or the kind of vulgarity that are so common these days on broadcast television. So, you know, comedy in general, in general, was more palatable. Uh, you know, but even though Marr was a lot more liberal than me, um, he was among the first comedians to, you know, make fun of the emerging phenomenon of political correctness way back in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, especially politically incorrect speech, so-called. Because the whole idea of, of, you know, like speech codes and all that deserves to be mocked. <laughs> and because, you know, from his aspect, without free speech, there isn't any comedy. You know, you have to understand there's a difference um, between political correctness and social convention. You know, when I was a boy, it was understood that there are certain topics that you didn't discuss in polite company. Sex, politics, religion, Right. But those taboo topics uh, have always been the heart and soul of comedy. You think of Henny Youngman's famous one-liner, uh, take my wife, please. Or even all the way back to Will Rogers when he said, um, I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And, uh, and you can imagine how many jokes, you know, the thousand jokes that begin a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a bar and so forth. You know, humor is about kind of popping the balloon of pomposity. It's about turning things on their head. And, and comedy's only funny if there's an element of truth in it. And to paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, it is the sign of a healthy religion or political party or social group or whatever to be able to laugh at itself. Now, I come from a long line of cowboys, and I know that it is possible to cross the line. You know, as, as my father used to say, some things ain't funny. But in general, if you can't take a joke, there's something wrong with you. And that's why so much of what passes for comedy these days is, is, is simply not funny. Because it's not about the truth. It's not about the foibles of, you know, the human foibles of people, whether they're left, right, or center. It's just a lot of vulgarity and profanity and, increasingly, virtue signaling. You know, do you ever wonder why the jokes, uh, you know, if you watch one of those late night uh, talk shows and the Guy comes out to do his monologue, and every joke is greeted with this uproarious laughter and wild applause. You know, why is that? It didn't used to be like that. And the reason is, you know, Johnny Carson, back in the day, <clears throat> you know, he, he's only agenda was to entertain his audience. And he actually had an audience. But, uh, you know, today, the, those late-night talk show hosts don't so much have an audience as they have a tribe, and so every piece of mean-spirited invective masquerading as humor has to be greeted with unrestrained enthusiasm 
you know, so that the audience can prove that they're good members of the tribe. You know, it's kind of like people back in the old Soviet Union who would uh, rather pass out from exhaustion than risk being the first one to stop applauding for Stalin. Okay, now back to Bill Maher. Uh, on Friday on his program, Real Time, which is the successor to his previous program, aptly titled, aptly titled Politically Incorrect. I'm sorry, I'm working with rented lips today. Hang on. Get a little moisture in there. Um, he said the most controversial thing that a liberal today can say. He said, pro-lifers do not hate women. Now, one of his guests, a uh, senator from Minnesota named A.B. Amy Klobuchar, or Klobuchar, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce her name. She, you know, he said to her, I'm certainly pro-choice. What I'm saying is you shouldn't say the other side to the other side, you people hate women. They don't hate women. They think abortion is murder. And if you think it's murder, then you can't go, well, except for people with a uterus. They can commit murder, Right. He said, I don't think it's murder, but they legitimately do, and it insults them, you know, to be told that they hate women. And that kind of candor really is refreshing from someone on the left who is both, you know, pro-abortion and uh, an avowed atheist. But it was intolerable to his guests. The senator tried to, tried to throw up the, the liberal smokescreen by bringing up the phony position of people like Biden and Pelosi, for example. She said... Uh, There are pro-life people who have the view that's fine. They just don't think that they should put their views on someone else. Uh, And Marr pointed out the obvious. He said, but you wouldn't say that about a murderer. And that's what their point is. It's not because they hate women. At which point, uh, Rob Reiner, actor, comedian, uh, also a guest on the program, said that pro-lifers are trying to foist a Christian nationalist agenda on America. Remember that abortion was illegal everywhere on the earth until, you know, roughly 50 years ago. Uh, And Marr, again, disagreed. He said, not everyone who is pro-life is a Christian nationalist, which is obviously true. Muslims are against abortion, and they're hardly hardly Christian nationalists. So uh, I want to just point out that that Bill Marr, for all his faults, he's, he's one of an emerging group of liberals who are refusing to get caught up in some of the irrational sides of, of liberalism, like the, the transgender nonsense, because they can see that it's irrational. Now, according to a LifeSite News article, and if you, when the, the show gets posted, it'll be in the show notes, you can follow the link. Um, Marr took a lot of heat from liberals uh, last May because he devoted an entire segment of his show to um, opposing the insanity of, quote-unquote, gender transitioning children. And again, any person of goodwill should be against that. Last February, he actually defended the legislation put forward by um, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, prohibiting uh, teachers from teaching sexuality, uh, teaching about sexuality to children uh, in the third grade and younger, or younger than the third grade. You know, as if third graders need to hear about this, you know. And, and Marr said that he understands the parents' concerns. And, and he is himself, understandably, very uncomfortable with trans activist rhetoric about protecting kids from their parents, right? As, as any rational person would be. So although I disagree profoundly with Bill Maher on almost everything, a whole host of issues, no-nonsense Catholic is awarding him the first ever Even a Broken Clock is Right Twice a Day award for having the courage to go against the liberal tribe 
and defend common sense regarding the fact that being pro-life does not mean that you hate women. Okay, and then I'm going to take a quick drink here, wet my my whistle. Not wet, but wet. And uh, we're going to go to our next award. And as you know, this podcast is called No Nonsense Catholic. And there is a special word that describes the type of nonsense that uh, we oppose on this program. It can be found in Webster's under B, right between the words bulwark and bullfinch. Okay. And, and so our next award is called the Webster's Has a Word for It Award. And the very first Webster's Has a Word for It Award is being presented to Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, who will play a central role at next year's gathering of the world's bishops for the Synod on Synodality. At a Vatican press conference on Friday, August 26, Cardinal Hollerich insisted that he had no personal agenda for the synodal process. Uh, This was in answer to a question that uh, somebody raised regarding comments that he made last February, wherein he said, and I quote, he believes the sociological scientific foundation of the Church's teaching on homosexuality is no longer correct, unquote. Therefore, uh, it follows logically that he must also believe that the Church's doctrine on homosexuality is itself incorrect. Now, he was singing a different tune last Friday when he said, quote, I fully believe in the tradition of the Church, and what is important, I think, in this process is not a change of doctrine. But what is important is to listen to everybody, to listen also to the suffering of people. I think of parents, for instance, of people concerned, and to have a change not of doctrine, but a change of attitude, that we are a church where everybody can feel at home. So I am not in favor of changing any doctrine. I am in favor for a church where really everybody can feel welcome, unquote. Although he did add that this welcome does not mean that there cannot be, quote, discussions and different positions, unquote. Now, the elephant in the room <laughs> that was not addressed uh, is pretty clear. First, that the cardinal was named to an important post in the bishop's synod precisely after he made his public comments against the church's teaching on homosexuality. And secondly, that he conflates doctrines with opinions. A doctrine is by definition a teaching that must be held by the Catholic faithful, and that includes bishops. Catholics do not get to pick and choose which doctrines they will or won't believe. There's a word in Greek which means to pick and choose. It's heresy. So, um, and also Cardinal Hollerich never said that he accepts the church's teaching, uh, church's doctrine on homosexuality, but rather that he is, quote, not in favor of changing doctrines generally. So, as, you know, as though the church has the authority to change doctrines at all. However, in, in, you know, looked at in light of his position that the sociological scientific foundation of the church's teaching on homosexuality is no longer correct, His call for not a change of doctrine, but a change of attitude, suggests that he's looking for a church where doctrines don't have to be changed, but they also don't have to be acknowledged if they make you feel unwelcome, which is nonsense. The kind of nonsense that you find in Webster's between Bulwark and Bullfinch. Uh, St. Paul said in the book of Romans that the pagan preoccupation with sodomy and the dreadful spiritual and physical consequences that follow 
He said that that itself was a divine punishment. Doctrines matter because actions have consequences. Also, if you look at the the summaries of the Continental European Bishops' Conferences that have come in uh, regarding the synod of synodality, there's a marked divide between Eastern uh, and Western Europe where doctrine is concerned. Uh, Eastern European Catholics mostly want to see doctrine and church structure remain intact, whereas some of the Western European Catholics are looking for the church to accept divorce and remarriage, so-called homosexual marriage, put an end to priestly celibacy, and so on. Which, to be consistent, would mean the acceptance of Catholic priests entering into so-called homosexual marriages. Not just married priests, but priests in homosexual unions which I fear is precisely what this is all about. Not just listening to Catholic parents of, of homosexual children or, or, or priests that struggle with homosexual attraction, which the church does anyway, but accepting or even celebrating that act of homosexuality. Okay, finishing up with this and coming back with 10 memorable sayings of our Lord right after this. Stay with us, No Nonsense Catholic, on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. To finish up with the presentation of our No Nonsense Catholic first ever, Webster's has a word for it award. Uh, Cardinal Hollerick, as I said, um, made uh, a splash in the media when he said that the sociological slash scientific foundation for the church's teaching on homosexuality is not correct or no longer correct. And then Friday of last week, he says, now that he's... uh, um, playing a central role in the, in the synod on synodality he, in Europe there. He says that um, he's not for a change of doctrine, but a change of attitude, wants a church where everybody feels welcome regardless of their um, position or uh, different di- positions. Um, the thing is, of course, um, you know, we, have, we have a lot of questionnaires being sent out by the bishops' conferences, and some of them have come back with people saying that they want to have uh, married clergy and they want to have homosexual marriage, which means homosexual married clergy. I mean, that's logically, that's what follows. And and he, he says not a change of doctrine, but a change of attitude. But such a change of attitude would be, you know, it would amount to nothing less than church-sanctioned mortal sin, which is nonsense. It's 100% grade A nonsense. Um, but I'm going to give a, a final quote here from Cardinal Hollerick. He said, Thank you that I could clarify this, but also, which is very important, I have no personal agenda for the Synod. I have no personal agenda for the Synod. I have got a concrete mission by the Pope, which is to listen and to serve. Now, if I could, I would remind the Cardinal that he also has a concrete mission from God, which is to teach, govern, and sanctify the faithful, not to call doctrines into question or ask the faithful what they think the Church ought to teach instead. And so the first ever Webster's Has a Word for It award goes to Cardinal Hollerick of Luxembourg. And uh, unfortunately, the Cardinal is not here to accept the award because he doesn't know anything about it. And that is no nonsense. Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, as you may have deduced from today's awards, you know, when an atheist comedian makes more sense than the Cardinal Archbishop of Luxembourg, we've got a problem in the church. 
But it's not a new problem. Uh, the human element of the Catholic Church has always been human. And, you know, uh, for examples, just kindly consult the Gospels regarding the de- betrayal and beni- denial of Christ by uh, Judas and St. Peter. And naturally, many will say that in a case like that of Cardinal Hollerick, that we should apply what Jesus told the apostles regarding the Pharisees. Therefore, be careful to do whatever they tell you, but do not follow their example, for they do not practice what they preach. And naturally, it's, it is well to always remember our Lord's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But today I'd like to consider the parable of the unjust judge from Luke 18, also known as the, the parable of the persistent widow or the importunate, importunate widow. Uh, Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he, also, and he spoke also a parable to them that we ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was a judge in a certain city who feared not God nor regarded man. And there was a certain widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a long time. But afterwards he said within himself, Although I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow is troublesome to me, I will avenge her, lest continually coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And then he goes on to say, And will God not revenge his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he have patience in their regard? I say to you that he will quickly revenge them. But yet the Son of Man, when he cometh, shall he find, thank you, faith on earth? Okay, so constant prayer. To persist in prayer and to not give up. Uh, That means keeping our requests continually before God as we live for him day by day confident that he will answer. To live by faith means to persevere. Now, God may delay in answering, and we know that his delays, though, always have good reasons, and his answers are always for our ultimate good, and as I repeat pretty much every week now, suffering is good for us, for sinners as an opportunity to repent, and for the just uh, as an opportunity for greater merit. And when we persist in prayer, we grow in virtue, especially the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And obviously, uh, as our our Lord is saying, if a godless judge responds to this constant nagging of a widow, as a person who has no, uh, you know, had no power at all in the ancient world, how much more will a great and loving God respond to the well-intentioned and persistent heartfelt prayers of the faithful? If we have faith that he loves us, we can be confident that he will hear and answer our cries for help. But what about that final verse? It's a dogma of the church, which again, Catholics must believe, that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. It is an article of the creed that faithful Catholics recite every Sunday. And yet Jesus himself asks rhetorically, But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And while I was preparing these remarks, doing a little Bible study, I consulted several biblical commentaries, four of them Catholic, two contemporary and two traditional, and one of them, you know, quote-unquote non-denominational. And you know what? I didn't find a single word of commentary about this verse. And that tells me that this is a question for each generation of Christians to ask themselves. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What do you think? 
Benedict XVI said that uh, he thinks the church will continue to shrink, but the remaining remnant will be the stronger for it, uh, presumably because, um, you know, only those ones left will be the ones who really keep the faith. And what we know for sure, though, is that we are closer to the Day of Judgment than we ever have been before. And the closer we get, the question of whether Jesus will find faith on earth seems less and less rhetorical. And that's no nonsense. All right, uh, speaking of biblical commentaries, um, one of my favorites was compiled by a a 19th century German bishop named Justus Necht. It's called A Practical Commentary on Holy Scripture. It was uh, Tan put it out. I, I suspect it's still uh, available. And um, for the text, for the biblical text, uh, Father or Bishop Necht actually used Father Ignatius Schuster's Bible history. Now, you know, uh, Betty and I homeschool the kids, and so we use Schuster's Bible history with our own children for their religion class. Uh, but, but Bible histories used to be very common in Catholic schools. And the point of using the Bible history for a text instead of the Bible itself is that a Bible history uh, compiles the biblical story into a single chronological narrative. You know, and if you've ever tried to read the Bible straight through, you know that uh, you know, the Old Testament books often repeat uh, the same stories and events over and over again. And the Gospels, likewise, have a lot of material in common, but will differ in the details. So a Bible history is an attempt to harmonize those various accounts into a single narrative so that you can learn the biblical story in an in a organic way. You know, you can encounter the characters, understand how they fit into the big picture, you know, in the same way that you would if you were reading a, a novel or, a, or a, you know, a, a secular history. Now, 20-some years ago, when I was working um, with Terry Barber here at St. Joseph Communications, we produced The Great Adventure, right? Jeff Caven's uh, Bible study, which was a way of doing the same thing, only using the, the Bible timeline kind of as a roadmap to jump back and forth from book to book and verse to verse to get that chronological big picture of Scripture. You know, because it's important to understand how it all fits together. Uh, uh, the point of all this is that in Schuster's Bible history, there's a chapter called Ten Memorable Sayings of Our Lord. And it's a collection of things that Jesus said that either aren't a part of that, you know, single narrative um, structure or that deserved some special emphasis. And so I wanted to share them with you today, along with some commentary from Bishop Necht and uh, some insights from, you know, existential insights from yours truly on, on, on application. And no doubt you've heard all of these verses before, but a solid foundation on the fundamentals, the creed, the commandments, the sacraments, the Bible, that's the best way to keep your faith. So with that in mind, 10 memorable sayings of our Lord, and I'm hoping we're going to be able to get through all 10. Number one is John seven sixteen and 17. Jesus said, my teaching is not my own, but is from the one who sent me. Whoever chooses to do his will shall know whether my teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own. So this is a test of uh, divine doctrine. Those who attempt to know God's will and do it will know in their minds and hearts that Jesus was telling the truth about himself. Serving God, doing his will, practicing the moral precepts of Christ will reveal that the doctrine proposed by our Lord is and must be divine. Now, the true faith comes to those of goodwill. It's a gift, you know, and those of goodwill will also grow in virtue, 
which protects and increases and strengthens your faith, whereas vice, on the contrary, weakens the faith, even produces an aversion to the teachings of Christ and his church. You might even find yourself saying that the the uh, sociological foundations of the church's doctrines are no longer correct. You know? Point being, it ultimately leads to unbelief and apostasy. And also, if somebody says, oh, you need to hear such and such a, a, a mystic speaker, or you, know, you have to see this YouTube video about this visionary from wherever, and you wonder, you know, is this legit? Well, this is the test to determine if they're telling the truth. Do their words agree with the Holy Scriptures and the Catechism and the perennial magisterium of the Church and not contradict them? And do their words point not to themselves but to Christ and to His Church and to knowing and loving God and doing His will? All right, number two is John eight twelve. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. In the first chapter of his gospel, John reveals Jesus as being there at creation. Nothing was created except through him. And his life brings light into the, in, to mankind. And in this light, we see ourselves as we really are, sinners in need of a Savior. And when we follow Jesus, the true life, we can avoid walking blindly and falling into sin. He lights the path ahead of us so that we can see how to live and removes the darkness of sin from our lives. Okay, more on the 10 memorable sayings of Jesus when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to round four on No Nonsense Catholic for this week. Great to have you with us. Uh, going now uh, through our list of 10 memorable sayings of Jesus, we're on number three. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, our Lord is saying, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must set aside selfish interests, be willing to endure whatever may come, and conform himself to my example for living and if need be, to suffer and perhaps even die for his faith in me. So self-denial, it's, it's necessary for every Christian, for without self-denial there's no virtue. And our Lord himself uh, went before us to show us the way, and his whole life on earth was one great act of self-renunciation and self-denial. And that ties in with our next verse, number four, Matthew eight twenty. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus used that title, Son of Man, by the way, to refer to himself as the Messiah over 80 times in the Gospels. And here he is showing us his poverty, his embrace of poverty. He was born in a stable, never owned a home of his own all the time he dwelt on earth. He often spent all night in prayer out in the open, he wandered about like a stranger, living on alms. His deathbed was the cross, which, you know, on which he literally had nowhere to lay his head. Even his dead body was buried in another man's tomb. So it should come as no surprise that uh, you know, following Jesus is not always easy or comfortable. It often entails great cost and sacrifice, with little or no earthly rewards or security. Just as Jesus didn't have a place to call home, 
you may find that following Christ costs you, costs you your popularity, your friendships, your, your leisure time, some of your favorite habits have to be given up. But while the cost of following Christ is high, the value of being his disciple is even higher. Discipleship is an investment that lasts for eternity. And the benefits are, as we like to say, literally out of this world. Uh, number five is Matthew ten thirty seven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't love your family, okay, far from it, but that you should put the love of God before everything else. And because Jesus is God and has loved us even unto death, we, in return, must love him above all things, more than father or mother, more even than our own lives. Bottom line, commitment to Jesus takes precedence over everything else. And then this next saying is also related. Number six is John twelve twenty five. Jesus says, the one who loves his life uh, loses it, but the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. So in other words, uh, if someone loves life, this life more than God, who, you know, if given the choice, forsakes God rather than losing his earthly life, is sure to lose his life in eternity. But he who, uh, you know, considers life as little compared to eternal life, and will give it up for Christ's sake, will certainly gain everlasting life. Hence, the church of the firstborn, uh, and, and uh, from, from our gospel reading from last Sunday, the church teaches that the holy martyrs pass straight to heaven without, you know, tasting of the pains of purgatory. And then number seven, um, and I don't know, we may not get beyond this one today. We may have to pick it up again next week, but number seven is Matthew 11, verse 12. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing as me. You're thinking, wait, what? <laughs> For some context, we should go back to verse 11. Jesus says, Amen, I say to you, that is, I, I assure you, or I solemnly say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. <clears throat> so to begin, John is, you know, he's the last and the greatest of the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament prophets. Uh, but it says the, the least of the new covenant saints outshines the greatest of the old because the old covenant prophets looked ahead to the new covenant but didn't share in its blessings. Remember, we read about John the Baptist in the Gospels, but he died before Jesus went to Calvary to redeem us. So Jesus is contrasting the Old and New Covenants, not undermining the saintly life of, of John the Baptist, because as he himself says, no one ever fulfilled his God-given purpose better than John. But then that pesky verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Um, Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch's commentary, the Ignatius Bible commentary, says that this verse is notoriously obscure. You know, but there are some common views um, about its meaning. Number one, it may be referring towards this, um, you know, vast movement toward God, you know, that miraculous growth of the early church, that uh, the momentum of which began with the preaching of John the Baptist. 
secondly, the word violence, you know, might be a reference to Christian asceticism, you know, uh, mortification and self-denial um, that those, you know, violent men, quote-unquote, who discipline themselves, you know, with prayer and fasting, they're the ones who are going to take hold of the kingdom. Or number three, he may have been reflecting on the expectation of the Jewish zealots who believed that God's kingdom would come, but only through the overthrow of Rome, or or possibly the onset of the messianic woes, which was another Jewish expectation that uh, um, the, the kingdom of God would only come during times of immense tribulation and distress, that those days would witness like mass apostasy and the persecution of the saints. Now, in that view, John the Baptist uh, was executed for his witness to Jesus. He would be the first of the faithful to die, you know, in, in, this, in this time, and then, you know, in the arrival of these days, and then followed by Jesus, and then his followers, you know, up until this day. Um, and then finally, you have number four is the traditional Catholic understanding, uh, which is that it's kind of a combination of the, of the previous ones, that, that Jesus meant that entering into God's kingdom takes courage. It takes an unwavering faith and determination and endurance because of the growing opposition level that Jesus and his followers, which continues right up to this very day. Uh, so this is a call to the virtues of temperance and fortitude, uh, that if you wish to win heaven, you must persistently restrain your evil inclinations, you know, to fight against your passions, to struggle against all external temptations, and never be turned away from what's right because it's difficult or because of persecution. And that ties in to the next memorable saying of our Lord, number eight, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's Matthew 16, 25 and 26. It is one of my pet peeves, that many modern English translations do not make the distinction between life and soul in these verses, life being vita in Latin and soul, which is anima. And so they would render verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? It makes mincemeat of the passage. It makes it, uh, it makes it nonsense. Because what Jesus is saying is, whoever wishes to save his life, that is to say his earthly life in this world, will eventually lose it, right, through death. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is, if you give up your earthly life in exchange for eternal life with Christ. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, that's wealth, power, faith, success, but forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can give your earthly life in exchange for eternal life, uh, but... If you lose your soul, it's lost forever. It would truly profit you nothing to possess all of the power and honor and riches possible in this world if you injure your soul in the process. And the church is here to remind us that all sin, and especially mortal sin, does injury to the soul. And therefore, if, if a man could gain the whole world by committing one mortal sin, would it be of any profit to him? No, of course not. Because death would eventually take all of his worldly possessions away from him, and then he would be punished forever in hell. Some of our separated brethren have the motto, once saved, always saved. But Jesus says, once lost, 
forever lost? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? What can he do or give to redeem his soul from hell? Nothing. Once your man's soul is lost, you know, once your soul is in hell, it remains lost. Nothing can redeem it from everlasting damnation. And therefore, the, the care of the soul is more important. It's the most important business in life. It is the one thing needful, as our Lord says. All right. I've got uh, two more verses on this list. I think we're going to save them for next week. If you want to play ahead, it's um, uh, going to be Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 and John six forty-four. So uh, if you can remember that or write it down quickly and... Uh, uh, look them up. You can you can play ahead. But those we will tackle next week. Also going to be doing the, the readings for next week and talking about the month of September, which is, um, you know, the penultimate uh, final month or the penultimate month of this special year dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Remember, in 2021, Pope Francis declared October of 2021 through October of 2022, a year devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary, devotion to Mary. And these months of August, which is now over today, uh, you know, where we had the the uh, dedication of the Basilica of St. Mary Major, which was, you know, the great Marian shrine in Rome, and more, more popes and princes have visited that than any other Marian shrine. The 15th, we have the Assumption, and then eight days later on the octave, the Queenship of Mary, all that happened um, this month. And then September is, uh, every year, is especially dedicated to Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. And you may not uh, realize, you may in fact be surprised to learn that there are more Christian martyrs today, more people are dying for their faith today than at any time in history. And so uh, we really need to turn to Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. And then, of course, um, next month, it, it rounds out in October, uh, with the month of the Holy Rosary. And we always do special programs for the Holy Rosary in the month of October. So looking forward to all of that and lots more. want to say thank you for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, uh, your prayers especially, also your financial support. If you can give us a one-time gift or become a monthly donor, I, I promise you we really appreciate it. We pray for the intentions of all our listeners and especially for all of our donors you can go uh, to vmpr.org. There's a big donate button right on the right on the home page, and find out how to give a one-time gift or maybe even become a monthly donor, because we absolutely rely on your support, both uh, temporal and spiritual. Okay, until next time, I, I want to say it's great to be back in the saddle, and until we meet again, may God richly bless you and your family. Inigo.